We are going to take a break from the Lord's Prayer this Sunday because we have a guest preacher, Lee Augsburger. It's my pleasure to introduce him. Lee is a ruling elder at our sister church, Grace Redeemer Church, that's hosting the women's retreat. Gotten to know Lee through serving on a committee together for our presbytery, so it's a great chance to introduce a friend. Lee has had a long and successful career as an attorney and then heard the call to ministry. And I love this story, and I think maybe you'll hear a little bit more about it this morning. Lee is completing a Master's of Divinity at Westminster, and he's a candidate for ordination in our presbytery. So it's a great joy and pleasure to have you here, Lee. Welcome. Well, it is a joy to be here, and I am grateful for the opportunity, excuse me, to uh, open God's Word this morning. Um, would you be so kind as to turn in your Bibles or perhaps in your bulletins uh, to Psalm 116? And I'd encourage you uh, to follow along with me as I read this passage uh, that we'll be thinking about this morning. Please listen and read carefully. These are the very breathed out words of God Almighty. I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came over me, and I was overcome by distress and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Lord, save me. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the unwary. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return to your rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. For you, Lord, have delivered me from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I trusted in the Lord when I said I'm greatly afflicted, and in my alarm I said everyone is a liar. What shall I return to the Lord for all his goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. Truly, I am your servant, Lord. I serve you just as my mother did. You have freed me from my chains. I will sacrifice a thank offering to you and call on the name of the Lord I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people in the courts of the house of the Lord in your midst, Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, we ask this morning that you would open our ears to hear your words, that you would open our minds to understand your wisdom, and above all, Open our hearts to know you more fully and truly, that your name may be praised and glorified. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, again, as Dan said, my name is Lee Augsburger. I am under care of the West Hudson Presbytery and preparing potentially for ordination as a minister of the gospel. I'm in my last year of Westminster, and uh, I stand to you today, before you today, as one 
who, like the writer of this psalm, had found distress and sorrow. Nothing appeared on the surface, but the cords of death had wrapped themselves around my heart. I was languishing and nothing satisfied. Oh, to all appearances, I was the paragon of success, vocationally, financially, even spiritually. But it was distress and emptiness. My soul was restless and searching for something undefined, something unknown to bring lasting peace. Now, we don't know each other, so let me give you some background. I was raised in a church. My grandfather was a minister. I was baptized, even as this young one was this morning. I was active in youth group and choir, attended a Christian college, and through what can only be described as truly divine intervention, I met and married a wonderful Christian woman. And after my legal career got going, we had a perfect daughter. She was beautiful, she was smart, she played the piano and violin, and most importantly for dad, all the guys were afraid of her. <laughs> Vocationally, I was senior vice president at a Fortune 500 financial services company, and I served as its chief ethics and compliance officer and supervised the staff of more than 500 people around the world. We had a vacation home at the shore, we had the country club membership, and I even drove a Porsche. <laughs> I was an in-demand conference speaker. I served as chairman of the board of leading industry nonprofit organizations. I was published in various industry uh, magazines, including the Harvard Business Review. I served as adjunct faculty at New York Law School. I lectured regularly at Rutgers Business School and served on their board of advisors to its Institute of Ethical Leadership. And not only that, my wife and I served our local church, often leading in worship. I served as an elder, I regularly taught, and was a leader in the church's small group ministry. We traveled as we wanted, and our family saw much of the world. And like the psalmist writes in verse 3, I found distress and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O oh Lord, I pray, save my life. I came to the end of myself, despite the accolades of the world, the comforts of affluence and career success. And our Lord is gracious, and he is compassionate. And I'm here before you this morning to testify to that great truth. But let us look at the words of the psalmist himself. His words are God's words. So let's look at his testimony. This psalm can be broken down into three basic parts, past, present, and future. What's happened to the psalmist, where he is presently with the Lord, and what it is that the psalmist intends to do in his future. Verse 3 tells us that the cords of death encompassed him, and the anguish of the grave was upon him. And in verse 6, we're told that he was brought low. In verse 8, he describes the fact that his eyes were rescued from tears, his feet were delivered from stumbling, and above all, that he was rescued from death. The situation of the psalmist was dire. 
And because of the seriousness of the situation, scholars looking at this passage have theorized that perhaps this psalm was written by David after one of his near-death experiences being chased by Saul. Or perhaps it was written by Hezekiah the king who was told that he was going to die. And he prayed before the Lord and the Lord delivered him from his illness. There is great comfort in these words for all of us. Have you felt this way? Many of us can testify to God's grace in serious illness. I've watched people struggle with cancer. I've seen serious infections and they often felt like they were close to dying. Just in these past weeks, my wife was hospitalized with serious respiratory problems. So serious, in fact, that she said goodbye to me before we got to the emergency room. But God is gracious. And God does often rescue from near-death experience. But maybe our illness is not so obvious. Maybe the struggle is not physical. Maybe it's deep within our souls where there's no sense of hope, no comfort. Maybe you're wondering, is there really a God who cares? Or wondering if he can deliver us from that bad habit that we just can't shake, the mistakes that plague us over and over again. Well, what is it that the psalmist does when he's in that condition? Well, verse 4 tells us. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, save my life. And it's no accident and it's no mistake that he emphasizes the name of the Lord. It means something. In this psalm, we see God's personal name 18 times across 19 verses. You can check my counting. If you look in the bulletin, I think I got the number right. Notice that every time there's a reference to God except one, it uses the word Lord, capital L, with O-R-D in smaller caps. Now, you may already know this, but when you're reading your Old Testament, whenever you see the word Lord in capitals, it's the translator's best effort at conveying the name Yahweh, God's personal, intimate, family name. Some of you may have grown up with the old King James Version, where they translated this Jehovah. But today, in almost all modern translations, they use this convention with the word Lord in small capitals to represent the name Yahweh. Yahweh is the name that God himself gave to Moses at the burning bush. You remember the story? Moses says to God, after I tell the Israelites that the God of your father sent me and they ask what is his name, God replies to him, tell them Yahweh, I am that I am has sent you. So whenever you read the Old Testament and you see the word Lord in small caps, think Yahweh, the personal, intimate, relational name of our God. Like the psalmist, we do not pray to some abstract power of the universe, uh, some force that just permeates creation. We pray to a God 
who knows us, who has revealed his personal name to us. And further, we're told in verse 5 what Yahweh means. Here, the psalmist is quoting from Exodus 34, 6, another story of Moses. Do you remember this one? Moses has just interceded on behalf of the Israelites following their idolatry with the golden calf. He's offered himself as a sacrifice for his people. And God told Moses that he had found favor with him and that he would not destroy Israel and further that he would be with them as they go up to the promised land. And at that moment, Moses asks, Yahweh, show me your glory. God hides him in a cleft in the mountain and covers him as his glory passes by. And as God does this, we find this declaration of God explaining his name fully in Exodus 34, 6. Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellions, and sin. This declaration, this verse, Exodus 34, 6, is repeated here in verse 6 of Psalm 116, and it is the most repeated verse in all of the Old Testament. We must never forget that our God, Yahweh, is relational, compassionate, gracious, abounding in love and faithfulness. And it's not a coincidence that when we get to the New Testament, Jesus tells his disciples, ask in my name and you will receive and your joy will be complete. As the old song goes, Jesus, Jesus, there's just something about that name. And indeed there is, it is the name above all names. And this is the name that we have been given. It's the personal, intimate, family name of our Lord. And so even as the psalmist prayed to Yahweh, our personal God, so too we have the opportunity to pray. So we see what's happened in the past for the psalmist. He was in distress and sorrow. His life was potentially at an end and he called out to the one and only loving God. And just let me add one more thought to this thinking about the past. Do you have moments in your life that you can point back to where you know that God delivered you? I can think of any number of times that he was merciful and rescued me. Situations where God clearly intervened and I was rescued. I was saved from something for sure. And it's good to remember and to rehearse these things in our lives, even as the psalmist does here in Psalm 116. In fact, many of the psalms are rehearsals of God's graciousness in the life of the psalmist, in the life of the people of Israel. Here's another quote from Psalm 77. The writer Asaph is crying out, has God forgotten to be merciful? Is he withholding compassion? Then I thought, I will appeal to this. I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will remember the deeds of Yahweh. If you're struggling 
Look to the Lord's protection and care in your life. And you know that he is there. It is good to remember and know that God is who he said he is, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining his, his love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. So we've seen what happened in the past. The question is, where is the psalmist now in the present? Well, he's not entirely explicit on this point, but we get some clues when we look at the middle verses. It's clear that he's been delivered from whatever the near-death experience was, as he says in verse 8. But now he's considering what God's purpose for him might be. And clearly, it's to walk before God and among his people. But the psalmist is also reflecting back on the challenging experience of his trial and the way that he reacted. Verse 10, he says, I trusted in Yahweh. But then he goes on to remember that he said in his alarm, all men are liars. It seems he's contrasting his faith in God and his faith in men. God is faithful, men are unreliable. But here's something that's really cool. And I know this is kind of a Bible nerd thing, but anytime the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament, it gives us greater understanding of that passage in the Old Testament. And Paul directly quotes verse 10 of this Psalm in 2 Corinthians in that passage that we read this morning. Specifically, he says, it's written, I believe, or I trusted, therefore I have spoken. Direct quote from Psalm 116. He goes on to say that since we have the same spirit of faith, we also believe and speak because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us uh, with you to himself. In quoting Psalm 116, what Paul is doing is saying that his faith is like the psalmist's faith in Yahweh, except that Paul goes further. He says that his faith in Yahweh is also his faith in Jesus Christ and his resurrection. It's the same faith as that of the Old Testament saints now fulfilled in the work of Jesus Christ. At the same time, Paul is also identifying with the psalmist's afflictions. And don't you just love the way Paul expresses himself? What does he say in verses 8 and 9? He says, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Brothers and sisters, this is our hope in Christ. Like the psalmist, this is our current condition. Yes, the psalmist is now walking before the Lord in the land of the living, but it's not a bed of roses, is it? When we look back through scripture and we look at the lives of the saints, it is hardly unending and constant comfort and prosperity. No, instead we see Joseph sold into slavery. We see Moses struggling in the wilderness. We see John the Baptist beheaded. We see our Lord crucified. We see Stephen stoned and we see Paul hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. 
And if we're not facing hardship in our Christian lives, even as Paul and the other saints, we may need to ask, where are we in our faith? If we don't find resistance to our Christian testimony, we need to consider our commitment. Paul is very clear in verse 10. We carry around in our bodies the death of Jesus Christ so that the life of Christ might be revealed. We are jars of clay, as he says. Some translations say earthen vessels. We are dust. But we are dust in which the all-surpassing power of God is displayed. This is where the psalmist is now. It's our calling day after day. We can't live in the past. Yes, reflection is helpful and it's encouraging. And we need to know our history and to remember how God has worked in our lives. But we will continue to be challenged in order that in our weakness, God's strength may be shown. And this is where the psalmist is right now in the present. He is proclaiming God's power in his life. He's continuing to find his strength, not in himself, but in Yahweh. Like Paul, the psalmist is hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, but not crushed, not in despair, not abandoned, and not destroyed. Finally, we turn uh, to the future to reflect on what it is that the psalmist intends to do next. Now, this is much clearer. We see this in the last part of the psalm, beginning at verse 12. He introduces this by asking, what shall I return to the Lord for all his goodness to me? He responds with a whole series of statements, beginning with the word I. I will lift up the cup of salvation. I will fulfill my vows. I will serve you just as my mother did. I will sacrifice a thank offering. And a second time, I will fulfill my vows in the presence of all the people. Now what the psalmist is doing is illustrating a very important principle that is found in scripture over and over and over again. In scripture, we receive first, and on that basis, we act. Think about this for a moment. In almost every letter of Paul, he provides the theology, and then there's a pivot point in his letter. In Romans, for example, we know this verse from Romans 12. Therefore, brothers and sisters, I urge you, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Why? Well, because of the theology that he's laid down in chapters 1 through 11. Paul is simply following, like the psalmist, the example of what God has done for his people throughout all of history. In the Old Testament, God says to the Israelites, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery and out of Egypt. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. So for the grammarians among us, you may recognize this as the difference between the indicative and the imperative. The indicative is the basis of the foundation and the imperative is what follows as a result. It's what it is that we are encouraged or commanded to do. The psalmist is illustrating the same thing. 
The indicative in Psalm 116 is God's goodness to him and saving his life. And on that basis, he is now demonstrating the imperative in his statements about what he will do in the future. He doesn't do this, though, out of a grudging sense of obligation. It flows from a heart of gratitude. It is a sense of, what more, Lord, can I do because all that you have done for me? My friends, God does not want us to be following a set of rules to fulfill obligations. Jesus railed against that kind of thinking during his earthly ministry, especially with the Pharisees. Following the law of scripture, reduced to a carefully set of, a carefully structured set of rules and obligations does not merit God's favor. His grace should prompt our obedience. And it's out of love that we, like the psalmist, should lift up the cup of salvation and fulfill our vows in the presence of God's people. Let's look for a moment at the things the psalmist says that he will do because of God's goodness. He says he will lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. And later in verse 17, he says, I will offer a thank offering I will sacrifice the thank offering and call upon the name of the Lord. The cup of salvation was a cup of wine that the person would drink who is offering the thanksgiving sacrifice in the temple. What's interesting about this is that this is an elective offering. This is not one that is commanded on a regular basis. Instead, it represents the gratitude of the person making the sacrifice. The psalmist also says, I'll serve you even as my mother did. This has got an interesting history as well because the psalmist is quoting from Exodus 21, which discusses indentured servitude among the Israelites. Uh, If a servant was freed after seven years, and during that seven years, the master had given him a wife and they had children, the wife and the children stayed with the master. It is a picture of true loyalty to the master. And yet, what is the psalmist's very next phrase? He says, nevertheless, you freed me from my chains or from my obligation as a servant. You have set me free. Again, expressing God's great blessing. Finally, I'd call your attention to the commitment of the psalmist to fulfill his vows to the Lord. And there is a decidedly public nature about how he intends to do this. We don't often think about vows in our day. We do make them. We make them in marriage ceremonies. We make them in baptismal ceremonies. We make vows in becoming members of a church and in desperation. Don't we make vows or promises to God, promising all kinds of things if he'd save us? Think about Jonah's prayer, desperate in the belly of the great fish. His last statement is, I will sacrifice to you with shouts of praise all that I vowed I will do. Jonah's prayer is the same as the psalmist. These are all good things that come from gratitude to our God for his overwhelming grace and mercy. But now let me flash forward from Psalm 116 
to the final supper that Jesus had with his disciples. You recall the moving scene where Jesus has demonstrated servanthood by washing the disciples' feet. Judas leaves, the disciples are confused. In John 13 to 17, we have Jesus' final instructions and his prayer for his disciples. And finally, according to both Matthew and Mark, after singing a hymn, they go out to the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. I don't know about you, but I've always wondered what that hymn was. Well, according to the rabbinic tradition in the Talmud, the celebration of the Passover meal is closed with the singing of Psalms 113 to 118. These Psalms collectively uh, celebrate the delivery of the Israelites from slavery and speak of God's great power and deliverance. They're a fitting close to the celebration of the Passover meal. But having looked at Psalm 116, let's think about that for a moment as Jesus might have sung those words on the night that he was betrayed. Remember the statements about the psalmist, made by the psalmist about what he was going to do. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Consider how that might have been thought of by Christ as he sang those words, I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Paul tells us in Ephesians 1 that from before the foundations of the world we've been chosen, which means before the foundations of the world, before creation, God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit contemplated and agreed to the creation of the world, understood its fall into sin, and the reconciliation that would be necessary through Christ's atoning death on a Roman cross. Now, theologians have a fancy phrase for this. They call it the pactum salutis, the pact or the agreement of salvation. And this is what Jesus prayed about in the garden, the will of the Father to which he had agreed before the foundation of the world. This is what Jesus sings about before praying in the garden, I will keep my vows in the presence of all the people in your midst, Jerusalem. Jesus also sings, truly I am your servant, Lord. I serve you just as my mother did. And we remember, yes, the words of Mary following Gabriel's message when she says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Did Jesus think about his earthly mother and her obedience when he sang these words on the night he was betrayed. Surely it's no accident that Mary's response to Gabriel is almost a verbatim quote of Psalm 116. And Jesus in perfect obedience, greater obviously than the obedience of his mother Mary, follows the command, his father's command singing, I am your servant, Lord. I serve you just as my mother did. Finally, consider verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. Did Jesus take comfort in these words as he sang them? Knowing that his action was completely in line with the Father's will, knowing that he faced death to bear the sin of all of us on the cross, knowing that his death was precious in the sight of the Father, I'm certain that he did. Hebrews 
22.2 says that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. So Psalm 116 reminds us that our Lord has done much for us in the past. Above all, he's rescued us from our sinfulness, and through his atoning death, he has reconciled us to himself. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. In the present, we will be hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, but not crushed, not in despair, not abandoned, and not destroyed. And so let us resolve in our future to lift up the cup of salvation, even as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, and call upon the name of Yahweh, our loving Father, and let us fulfill our vows to him, even as our Lord did, suffering the death on the cross that we might glory in his resurrection. This is the gospel of Jesus according to Psalm 116. And in this, we can rest for our Lord has truly rescued us from our brokenness and sin. And despite all that surrounds, our souls can be at rest and we can proclaim the graciousness and righteousness of our God. Amen. Let us pray. Yahweh, Jesus, our Lord, and our God, you are gracious and compassionate. We love you because you have heard us. You reached us in our brokenness and sin because, Jesus, you paid your vows in the presence of all people in the midst of Jerusalem. You became sin for us that we might be your righteousness. You have rescued us from death, our eyes from tears, our feet from stumbling, and we now walk in the land of the spiritually living. We praise your name. We lift up the cup of salvation. We offer our thank offerings before you, our great God and redeemer, to the praise of Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen.